many of you understand what Palm Sunday is all about, um, and some of you don't. So really quickly, I'll explain it. So Jesus spent um, three years publicly leading the disciples around Galilee, around Jerusalem, uh, teaching them uh, not only about who he was, um, but also who his father was and also um, who we are. And, uh, and that is, unfortunately, people who have rebelled against him and uh, people who have turned our backs on him in our natural state. And uh, then at the end of his three years of public ministry, he begins to, to make his way towards Jerusalem. And uh, what he knows is he's going there to die on the cross. Um, the disciples kind of don't know what he's doing. They probably think he's nuts. Uh, the crowds, actually, as he comes into Jerusalem, they think that Jesus is the coming Messiah who's getting ready to kick the Romans out. And so they're thrilled because they're like, hey, this guy, you know, can turn loaves and fishes into enough food to feed 5,000 people, and, and he can walk on water, and he can do all this great stuff. He's got to be the Messiah who we think um, is being called to kick the Romans out of Israel for good. And so as he makes his way into Jerusalem to die, he thinks, uh, they think that he's making his way into Jerusalem um, to become the Jewish king, the Messiah. And so they, the reason they call it Palm Sunday is because people begin laying down their branches, uh, palm branches in front of him, and they throw down their cloaks in front of him, and he rides in on this colt, even as Brad mentioned, because they think that he's getting ready to take over and be this king. But what we know happens next is that not only did the religious leaders end up rejecting him, but the people end up rejecting him as well. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that you have invited us into this place. And Father, we ask that since you've invited us into this place, that you would meet us here. Father, I ask what I always ask, which is that you wouldn't allow us to leave this place this morning without having had an encounter with you, the living God. And Father, I pray that as we walk out into um, the streets of Rome, Georgia, and into the doors of our homes, and through the doors of our workplaces, that wherever we go, um, that your kingdom would come. And that your kingdom would come deep down inside of our hearts um, so that we uh, slowly uh, but surely, if not reluctantly, begin to hand over um, the reins of our life to you. That you might um, create peace, that you might create wholeness, that you might create completeness, that you might really make um, our lives into the lives that, that you want them to be. Father, that you might turn us into the human beings that you want us to be, that we might flourish, that our homes might flourish that our children might flourish, that our wives might flourish, that even the places where we work might flourish because your kingdom comes um, with us and through us. So, Father, it's in your precious Son, Jesus' name today that we pray all of these things. Amen. So, George Walton was born back in 1907. And George Walton was the kind of kid who was always collecting stuff, you know? It, you know, probably every time his mom had to wash his pants, she probably found a rock and a dead, you know, lizard and probably a, an old watch that didn't work anymore. And, uh, and as he got older and older, he continued to be this kind of kid who just collected things, you know? So he, he would find old wheat pennies and he would, you know, find all these things and he just collected and collected and collected until the time he became a young man, he was a little bit of an expert on antiques and old things. Loved it. Just loved being a collector. He was one of the original American pickers. Well, he continued uh, to, to really become this great uh, authority on all sorts of antiques, so much so that uh, in the 40s, he basically ended up getting a job as an estate sale manager. So he would manage these estate sales, and he would you know, talk about how much this old couch was worth, and that chair was worth, and this clock was worth, and how much all these things were worth. 
And then he went into business for himself where he ran these estate sales. And the benefit of running an estate sale, basically where somebody sells everything off from their entire home, is that he got first dibs on all this great stuff, you know, on guns and uh, on, on jewelry and on old paintings and, you know, artwork, all of these things. He got to see it before it went to the public. And he got really good at understanding how much things were worth. Well, in 1945, he did an estate sale. And uh, as part of this estate sale, he found a 1913 Liberty Head nickel, which we've got up here. That's a Liberty Head nickel. Five of them were produced in 1913, only five. What was interesting is that four of them were present and accounted for. They knew where they were, but the fifth one was missing. Well, when he was doing this estate sale, he found this nickel and he said, that's got to be it. That's got to be the fifth one that's missing. It's worth who knows how much. And so he bought it from the owners of the estate. He paid somewhere around $3,500 for it. He went home and he told his family, he said, I found this, you know, missing Liberty Head nickel. It's worth a fortune. And then shortly afterwards, he died in a car wreck. Well, his wife took his collection of coins to have them appraised at one of the the foremost appraisers in America at that time. And she knew that he had this nickel. And I'm sure she was thinking, you know, this is my life insurance policy. And so she took all these coins. She took particularly this 1913 Liberty Head nickel to these, these fantastic appraisers. And they went through everything. They took a look at this nickel and they said, we're sorry to tell you this, but we really think it's a fake. And they rejected it outright. And they even put it in a little bag and across the bag, there was a sticker that said no value. They rejected it. So she took that coin home and along with these other coins that were marginally uh, worthless and she threw them in a box and put the box in the floor of the closet in the back of her house. And it sat there for 40 years until she passed away. And then her nephew, Ryan Gibbons, inherited this, uh, this box of coins, basically, from this old um, closet. And so he went through all the coins, and he looked through, and he found all these coins, and he saw that this one had been rejected and marked no value. He didn't really think anything of it until in 2003, one of the most famous coin collectors in the world uh, offered a reward for anyone who could find the missing Liberty Head nickel. And when he saw this reward somehow in the papers, he thought, you know what, that looks a lot like that old nickel that my great uncle had. And so he went back there and he dug out this box of coins and he grabbed it and he said, I'm going to at least take it and get it checked out. So Ryan Givens, who had inherited this coin that had been rejected, drove to where this, uh, this conference was, went to the conference and he went to the first appraisers and he said, hey, I saw the reward and I found this nickel. I inherited it. It just sat in a closet for 40 or 50 years collecting dust. Is this possibly it? And when the people, the appraisers saw it, they got excited. Their blood pressure went through the roof. And two of them looked at it, and they said, we think this is it. And so they called four other appraisers in, and late into the night, they compared this one Liberty Head nickel, the missing one, with the other four that they had, and they finally declared that it was the real thing, that this coin that had been rejected almost 50 years ago was actually this amazingly you know, worth, worth, worthy coin that they had found that had turned in. And so it was just very interesting because then a couple years later, um, instead of collecting the reward, he said, you know what, we just, we just want to hold on to it as a family heirloom. We don't want to give it up. And uh, so they held on to it for a few years later until someone made an offer that they couldn't refuse, at which point in time they sold this missing Liberty Head nickel for $3.17 million. It's a great story. It's really fantastic. You know, go home, actually, you know, over break or whatever, dig around in your parents' closet, look for coins or whatever. Maybe there might be one that's a real thing. But, you know, we hear about this all the time. You know, we hear about famous pieces of art or famous pieces of jewelry that are rejected, right? Either as fakes or rejected for some other reason. And so this infinitely valuable thing gets rejected because they think it's false. 
Well, the reason I tell this story today is 2,000 years ago, we have a story of Jesus, the real thing, the thing of infinite value, being rejected. And amazingly, what he, the people that rejected him were the experts, right? They were the ones that were the religious leaders. They should have recognized him. They should have known exactly who he was, but they rejected him. Now, let me, let me sort of begin by telling you, we're going to jump into Matthew 21. And uh, in Matthew chapter 21, the very beginning of the chapter is called the triumphal entry. And so it's what Brad described today, where Jesus comes into Jerusalem. He knows he's going to the cross. Everybody else thinks he's going to be, become king. He's making his way into Jerusalem, and it's during the Passover. Now, now, when it wasn't the Passover, it wasn't one of the major holidays, the city of Jerusalem was about 300 to 350,000 people, right? That was the population. But during these massive holidays, it basically went from 350,000 to over a million people. So it was packed. The city of Jerusalem was packed. And so where we're going to start here in Matthew chapter 21 is in the temple. And so Jesus is in the temple courts, and he's been teaching. All the people love him. The religious leaders, that's the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they kind of hate him, right? They just want to shut him up. They want to keep him quiet. They want to have him arrested, maybe even have him killed. And in the midst of the temple, right, there's this scene of this throng of people that are sitting there, and they're listening to Jesus, and he tells the following parable. He tells a parable about a landowner, and he tells a parable about some tenants who ultimately reject the landowner and kill the son of the landowner. Now, before we jump into the story, I'm going to just I'm going to actually tell you ahead of time that this is a parable, and each of the different people in here are representatives of uh, certain people that are in that crowd there. First of all, the landowner that you're going to read about, that's God. And then secondly, the vineyard that's talked about in the story, well, in the context there, that's the Jews, right? It's the people of God. If you're looking backward, you go, that's definitely the Jews that Jesus is talking about. If you look forward, you could actually say it's us. It's the masses of people who follow, follow Jesus. The servants that the landowner sends back to the vineyard in order to collect what is properly his are the prophets, and maybe, again, in context, it's John the Baptist. And the tenants are the Pharisees, the Sadducees. They're the religious leaders, again, who eventually reject Jesus. And then the landowner's son in the story is ultimately Jesus. So let's jump in. Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 through 45. Listen to another parable, Jesus says. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower, right? Now, again, this is the people of God that we're talking about here. They're the vineyard. It's you and it's me. It's the Jews back then. And again, we don't have time to get into it this morning, but part of what is not an uh, inconsequential detail is the fact that a lot of money is spent in protecting this vineyard and planting this vineyard. He, he plants the vineyard, the seed. He hires people to, to till the ground. He puts a wall up to keep it safe. Again, more labor and uh, more, to, you know, more rocks to build the wall. They dug a wine press, which was a huge effort. Built a watchtower in order to keep it safe. All of this communicates uh, to you and to me and to the Jews then, that you are of great value to God, that he values you massively. Then goes on to say, then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. Again, it's kind of a win-win. The tenants would have received a percentage of the yield, thus providing work and income for them. Ultimately, they benefited only because of the wealth and the goodwill of the landowner. Verse 34, when harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. Not the fruit or all of the fruit, but his fruit. He wasn't coming to take everything, but just what belonged to him, right? And how did the tenants respond? It says this, the tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, 
more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Again, in context here, Jesus is speaking about the prophets, most of which were killed or rejected, not by the Babylonians, not by the Assyrians, not by the Greeks, but rather they were killed by their own people. Last of all, verse 37, he sent his son to them. Luke says he sent his beloved son. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Jesus is asking the audience. He's asking the Pharisees. Verse 41, they answer, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. And again, what parables do is they sneak into our intellect through the back door of our emotion. Or another way of talking about this is they they sneak into our objective through the subjective. And he says this to, to draw the Pharisees in, to draw the Sadducees in. He says, how would the landowner respond? And they answer correctly, he'll bring those wretches to a wretched end, and then he'll turn the vineyard over to faithful stewards. This, of course, is foreshadowing of the sinners and the tax collectors who Jesus would welcome into his kingdom right? To be that new vineyard. It's foreshadowing of the Gentiles that will be welcomed in to the kingdom of God. Jesus said to them, verse 42, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is Psalm 118, which is where Brad took the worship, um, all of the worship leading from this morning. Verse 43, therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, religious leaders, and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. So here you've got the Pharisees, right? They come face to face with the stone. They're standing in the presence of the son. And what do they do? How do they respond? They not only reject him, but they look for a way to silence him, right? They reject him. Now, the question isn't really about what they reject, but rather the question is why they rejected him. And ultimately, I would say the question is why do we reject Jesus today, 2,000 years later? What we see in context is, is the reason that the religious leaders rejected Jesus is because they wanted something that ultimately belonged exclusively to the Son. Does that make sense? They wanted something that belonged exclusively to the Son. Look at the screen, verses 37 through 39. He says this, Last of all, he sent his Son to them. They will respect my Son, he said. But when the tenants saw the Son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance, right? Something that belongs exclusively to the Son. So they took him, the son, and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. So the key question here is, what is Jesus' inheritance that the Pharisees are trying to steal? The answer is, they're trying to steal the hearts of the people. They're trying to steal the faithfulness of the people. They're trying to steal the praises of the people. They're trying to to steal the authority that only belongs to Jesus. They're trying to steal glory that only belongs to the son. Jesus says, I'm not working for my own glory, but my Father is working for my glory to this very day. And this temptation 
to take over and to steal these things that belong exclusively to the, to the Son, praise, glory, authority, the hearts of the people. That's not a new temptation. In fact, it may have been the first temptation that caused Satan ultimately to want to ascend to the throne of God the Father. Listen to the words of Isaiah 14. They say this, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. Lucifer is actually the term there. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Now, let me just call time out here and say this. I don't actually think the Pharisees thought, we're going to try to take God's glory, right? They didn't objectively say that in their mind, right? And probably very few of you in this room said, have said the same thing, like, I'm going to get the praise that should just belong to God. Like, you, you both, everybody out there would know that would sound crazy to say it like that inside your own brain, right? But the truth is, this is a temptation which not only was a temptation for Satan, but it's a temptation for everybody in, in ministry, right? That's why these religious leaders, that's why it was such a temptation for them. Because the temptation for, for people in ministry, whether it's a pastor or whether it's young life leaders or campus outreach leaders or other people in ministry, the temptation all of a sudden is to really want the hearts of the people that you're serving to be focused more upon you than upon Jesus, right? I mean, it really does happen. It really does. The temptation is to want their fidelity more than you want their fidelity to be upon God. The temptation is for you to want people to say great things about you even more than you want them to say great things about God, the Father Almighty. It's a temptation for people in ministry. It's also a a temptation for anyone who serves, anyone who's in a position of authority, whether that's a parent. You know, it can be very much the tendency of parents. I can speak to this. I am one. It can be very much a tendency and a temptation for parents to want your kids to glorify you, to be obedient to you even more than you want them to be obedient to God. That's true for doctors. It's true for coaches. It's true for teachers. We can all, all reach a point of wanting people's hearts and adulation for ourselves more than we want the people's adulation and hearts to be placed upon the Son of God, right? That, that's something that only belongs to Him. It's exclusively Jesus' right to have the praises and the glory and the hearts of his people. And some of us reject Jesus for that very reason, because we want what exclusively belongs to him. The next reason that we see people rejecting Jesus is because some people just don't believe that Jesus was God. Listen to John chapter 8. John chapter 8 says this. Jesus, again, is talking again um, to the Pharisees here. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You're not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you've seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am, right? This is a claim to divinity. It's one of the seven I am statements in the book of John. Jesus knew what he was doing, and the Pharisees knew that he was doing it, which is why they respond. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, right? Because they knew that it was a claim to divinity, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. You see, the Pharisees, the people, they were okay with him as a rabbi. They maybe even were okay with him as a prophet, but they were not okay with his claim to be God, and they tried to kill him for it. And some of you in this room this morning look at Jesus, and you go, he was great. You know, I love the fact that he said, love your neighbors, right? You know, I love the fact that Jesus was, 
you know, gave, showed respect to women. That's great. I, I love the fact that he showed respect for the poor, right? That's all good and well. That's great. He's a good guy. But just don't bring to me the claim that he was God. Listen to what C.S. Lewis have to say. C.S. Lewis says this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that is Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says that he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great moral teacher. He has not left that open to us. He didn't intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God, right? So some of you appropriately are taking a look at Jesus and you're saying, look, he claims to be God. I can't accept that, right? That's crazy. Good guy, yes. Maybe a prophetic, you know, social activist type, I'm okay with that, but I'm not okay when he claims to be God. The problem is that you can't have both at the same time. You either have to accept him as God and then therefore accept his claims and accept his teachings, or else if he was either a lunatic or if he was a liar, then you need to throw his teachings out because he was either a nut or he was evil, right? And some of you have rejected him because you just can't believe that he was who he claimed to be. Others of you have rejected him because you want what exclusively belongs to him. Either way, you both have rejected him in your own ways. One more um, uh, beneath the surface that you're not even aware of, and the other one may be much more on the surface. The final way that we see people rejecting Jesus is this. We see that others accept Jesus as Savior, right? They don't want to go to hell, but they reject him as Lord. Listen to verses uh, 21 through 23 of Matthew 7. It says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. This is always a tricky passage because it sounds like what Jesus is saying is that the way you're saved is by what you do. But what's interesting in this passage is you have people that have faith. In other words, they have knowledge about who Jesus is, and they seem to accept him uh, for who he claims to be, right? And then all that, but it says they have works. It says that they cast out demons and they do mighty works. And so they've, they've got faith and they've got works. But ultimately, Jesus says, my father's going to actually not accept you one day. Why? Ultimately, it says this. It says, I'll declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. You had works, right? You had faith, but I never knew you. You never knew me. You never accepted me, not only as your, Lord, as your Savior, but also as your Lord. Tim Keller was interviewed uh, in, uh, in a magazine, and I've got a section that I'm going to read here in a moment. Uh, the interview is called Conversations About Christmas, and he addresses this idea of people that embrace Jesus as their Savior, don't want to go to hell, but they're not willing to embrace him as Lord. Listen to what Tim Keller has to say. He says this, 
I've heard people say, I'm checking out Christianity, but I also understand that Christians can't do this, and the Bible says you're supposed to do that. You're supposed to love the poor, or you're supposed to give up sex outside of marriage. I can't accept that. So people want to come to Christ with a list of conditions. But the real question is this. Is there a God who is the source of all beauty and glory and life? And if knowing Christ will fill your life with his goodness and power and joy so that you would, would live with him in endless ages with his life increasing in you every day, if that's true, you wouldn't say things like, you mean I have to give up blank like sex or something else? Let's say you have a friend who's dying of some terrible disease. So you take him to the doctor, and the doctor says, I have a remedy for you. If you just follow my advice, you'll be healed, and you will live a long and fruitful life. There's only one problem. While you're taking my remedy, you can't eat chocolate. Now, what if your friend turned to you and said, forget it. No chocolate? What's the use of living? I'll follow the doctor's remedy, but I'm also going to keep eating chocolate. If Christ is really God, then all the conditions are gone. If Christ is really God, then all the conditions are gone. To know Jesus Christ is to say, Lord, anywhere your will touches my life, anywhere your word speaks, I will say, Lord, I will obey. There are no conditions anymore. If he's really God, he can't just be a supplement. We've come to him, and we have to come to him and say, okay, Lord, I'm willing to let you start a complete reordering of my life, right? So what Jesus says there, I mean, what Tim Keller says there is, is you can't say, Jesus, I'll give you this part of my life. You know, I'll accept your salvation or I'll accept the parts I agree with, but I'm not going to let you have everything. In other words, you know, I'll accept you as my Savior, but I'm not ready to accept you as my Lord. And what Keller says is, he says, basically, look, if, if Jesus was God, if he is who he claimed to be, and if he's the author of all beauty, and if he's the author of truth, and he's, if he's the author of life, and if he's the author of human beings, and if he's the author of human relationships, and if, if he's the author of, of sociology, right? If he's Lord and God, then we need to turn over everything to him and say, okay, there are no more conditions. I will simply accept you not only as Savior, but Lord of my life, right? So we reject Jesus really for all these different reasons. We want what only belongs to him. Maybe we reject him because we don't believe he's God, and maybe ultimately we reject him uh, not as our Savior, but finally, as our Lord, the question is, so what? Does it make any difference at all? So what, what difference does it make? Well, here's, here's what I would say. I would say what you can take away from Matthew chapter 21, this parable that Jesus tells is this, is that rejection, that is rejection of Jesus, rejection equals destruction, and acceptance equals salvation. Rejection equals destruction, and acceptance equals salvation. Now, you, that first part is a little bit offensive, I think, to some of you. And so let me explain it really quickly. Rejection equals destruction. If you look at verse 44, what verse 44 says, Jesus says this to the Pharisees, those who have rejected him. He says, anyone who falls on this stone, that is me, will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. There are different passages in the Old Testament in particular that talk about this stone who is Jesus. Daniel and Isaiah, and everywhere you read about it, the stone comes and it, and it crushes those that don't submit to the stone as it's their Lord and their Savior. And it talks about in each of these passages the idea that these people will be blown away like chaff. Jesus said himself in John chapter 14, he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, 
you reject me, there's no life. Rejection equals destruction. The good news, however, is that acceptance equals salvation. Now, what does that mean? If you remember um, this morning, Brad read from Psalm 118, and then in the middle of Matthew 21, we see that Jesus quotes Psalm 118, right? And so in order for us to understand what it is that we receive when we accept Christ, we've got to go back there in a moment. But the short answer is that we will receive the kingdom of God. That's what the Pharisees even, that's how Jesus responds to them. But here's what the kingdom of God means fundamentally. We're going to go back again to Psalm 118. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. So rejection may equal destruction, but acceptance of Jesus as both our Lord and our Savior equals freedom, right? Gives you freedom, freedom from sin, freedom from death. Verse 6, the Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? So rejection may equal destruction, but acceptance equals fearlessness, right? So no longer do you need to fear sin. No longer do you need to fear death. No longer do you need to fear other people because when we turn the, uh, the keys over to Jesus, when we give him the reins, we also, in accepting him, are given the fearlessness that only the gospel can deliver. Verse 17, I will not die, but live. Rejection may equal destruction, but acceptance equals eternal life. And I will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open for me the gates of the righteous. Who's righteous? The only righteous ones are those who call upon the name of the Lord. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. So rejection may equal destruction, but acceptance equals heaven, right? Acceptance equals being brought back into the presence of God, into the presence of your heavenly Father. Verse 21, I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. So rejection may equal destruction, but acceptance of Jesus, this, uh, this stone, rejection of Jesus, acceptance of Jesus, this son equals salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. We read all of this today. We hear all of this today. Again, for many of you, this is a sermon which you go, wow, that is really kind of heavy. That's really kind of hard. I don't like all this talk about destruction. But to be honest with you, one of the things that I have to work through and wrestle with in my own life is I need to be more concerned about what God the Father thinks about me than about what you guys think about me. And part of what Jesus did here in this passage of Matthew chapter 21, and even in Psalm 118, is part of what he's doing is he's saying, look, if you want to flourish as a human being, if you want to live the life that I called you to live, you have to accept me. You have to turn everything over to me. You have to do, as Tim Keller said, you have to come to God and you, can, you say, no more conditions. I give you my life, right? But you also have to hear what Jesus says when he says, if you reject me, the son, if you reject me, the stone, then you need to understand that you're choosing a life where I'm not going to bless your, uh, your self-destructive tendencies. I'm not going to bless your agenda. The only blessing that you receive is when you turn to me and you trust in me as the Son, when you trust in me as not only your Savior, but also your Lord. It's an opportunity for you this morning to look at Jesus, to look at the Son, and to make a decision. decision. Do you reject him or do you accept him? Let's take one moment.
And let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the hard things that any doctor tells us. Whether that's um, the presence of cancer in our lives, Father, or if that doctor has to tell us that we need to um, quit eating unhealthily and that we need to rest and we need to exercise. Father, I pray that in the same way that we would hear you, our, our great physician, as you tell us what is required to heal us, um, to make us right. So, Father, I pray that, um, that we would look to your son Jesus and we would accept him as the true cornerstone upon which all of life and salvation has been built by you. So, Father, I ask that uh, through the power of your spirit today, you would take Jesus' claims and the reality of who you are and the reality of he, who he is and the reality of who we are, and you would allow us to come to you this morning and that we would proclaim that we no longer have any conditions, but we turn our lives over to you. Father, we pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.